Hello, and thanks for tuning in to Stable Connections, the podcast. Today's episode is with Just Kibby, and he talks to us about what it was like moving from California to both North and South Carolina, wake surfing, and how he got an MFA in poetry and burning on bones, and then finally, his trimming career. Enjoy! That is a question I get asked a lot, and my horse is the one who started me on that journey. He's pretty much been the catalyst for a lot of growth that I've had. I had moved from California to Asheville, North Carolina four years ago, and I moved onto a piece of property, and I thought that I was going to have a lot of time to spend with my horse, and I ended up pretty much not doing anything with him for two years while I was building a house. During that time, I, he had been in shoes and I pulled his shoes and he went barefoot for those two years. And then when I was selling that property and realizing that I, because that wasn't sustainable for me and I wanted to find another way of spending more time with my horse, I realized that he was not comfortable in his feet and I wanted to find a way to help him. And all the, the only answer that I was routinely given was to put shoes on him again. And that had worked in the past, but I didn't feel like it fixed the problem. It just kind of put a band-aid on it. So I decided that I was going to learn on my own. And I had accidentally ended up at a hoof trimming clinic when I first arrived in Asheville. It was a positive reinforcement clinic, but it was done piggyback with a hoof trimming clinic done by a lady named Ida Hammer. And she has an eight-day program where you can go and learn how to do it. So I went to that, and then I started trimming my own horse's feet. And the first time I did it, I was like absolutely terrified, like taking a pair of nippers and cutting into your horse's feet. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. So I just started working on his feet and started to like basically rehab them and figure out what was going on. And I, I had x-rays done, so I discovered that he had thin soles. Most horses need between 10 and 15 millimeters of thickness in their sole, and he was at 5.5, so really, really thin. And so through the process of trimming his feet and doing glue-on shoes and therapeutic boots and different things, I've been rehabbing his feet. And it's been nine months since I've x-rayed him, but when I last x-rayed him, he was at eight and a half, nine millimeters in sole thickness. It's just amazing to watch the transformation start to happen. And it's slow, like the progress of rehabbing feet and getting them to change and grow takes time because it's usually between seven and eight months for them to grow out an entirely new hoof. And you're gonna have to go through that a couple times to like have it regrow and help the internal structures be better suited to support them. But he was, I mean, he has been the one that has led me on a lot of journeys. He's been in my life for eight years and we've done a lot together. And that's how I got into it. Other people were telling me that this was going to be my profession, and I was really resistant to it. I didn't believe that it was a thing that I wanted to do. I didn't believe that it was going to be able to support me. Uh, there was a lot of reasons. I was just like, no, I'm just learning how to do this to do my own horse. So for the two years that I was first in Asheville, I had found somebody that would do... He trimmed my horse barefoot, but it wasn't helping him. 
that he hadn't made any progress. And I didn't know enough about what he needed at that point to ask for something different. Like that trimmer could have easily done more if I had known what to ask for. So as a horse owner, I didn't know enough information. And so partly I went through this course to like learn more about the feet so that I could at least talk to trimmers and be more educated in what I was asking for, or at least better understand what they were doing and see if it matched with what I thought my horse needed. Yeah, so there's a lot of opinions within the farrier world, yeah, different ways to do it. Definitely. And there's not one way to getting a good hoof, regardless of what theory you have, like the horse is going to tell you what works for them. Like I might think that I know the right theory. But if that horse doesn't like my theory, then it's not the right trim for that horse and I've got to find a way that's going to make them be more comfortable with what I'm trying to do. Because yeah. ultimately my goal is to help them feel better and move better and have a better quality of life. Uh, what was your reason for not wanting shoes? I think partly I had moved from California where it was very hard ground and I thought that the shoes might not be necessary on softer ground in the Asheville area because it's nice soft fields and I, I think that was as simple as my answer was at the time. And now my reason for that has certainly changed in terms of why I'm not interested in using steel shoes. So now you're just trimming, you're not doing shoes, you're a trimmer? I'm a trimmer. There are some cases where I do glue on shoes okay. um, or casting as a way of helping rehab that foot depending on what is going on in it. So what was the moving process like? I initially intended on starting a tiny home village on oh. the land that I had purchased and ran into lots of complicated hurdles through the permitting process and the building process and me also not really knowing what I wanted to do. And so I just was taking ideas from a bunch of different people and like starting all of them at the same time and none of them really worked out and I chose the most complicated building that you could possibly try to build and then also tried to build it on my own. And it just, it made it complicated for the permitting process, it made it complicated for the building process. Yeah. Anyway, I have been hard on myself about that whole process because it didn't work out the way that I wanted it to. But I realize now that what I was really doing in those two years was working on myself and realizing what I really wanted out of life and what was really going to be more fulfilling to me. And so even though those were two really hard years, I was coming out of a really long relationship and trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And so I think I was experimenting with a lot of different things. It had been my dream since I was a kid to have my own land and have my own farm. And like that was my chance. And so realizing that like I lost it was really tough. Like even when I made the decision to finally like sell it all, I didn't know what I was going to do. I had some money from selling the land. And so while I was on the land, I also had some other people that moved out there with their RVs and were paying me some rent. and. One of them became my new partner. It took me many, many months to realize that what I had been doing in those two years was working on myself. But even then, I didn't know what I was going to do next. So we ended up renting a house on Lake Kiwi in South Carolina for six months and didn't know what we were going to do after that. I had no idea what I was going to do to make money. I just knew I wanted to do something with horses and I wanted to be able to spend more time with my own horse. And I thought that I was gonna 
be trail riding in the mountains of the Carolinas or like leading trail rides or doing something exciting with horses and that's not what the universe was telling me I was going to do because my horse's feet were sore and I couldn't ride him and I'm like okay then what am I going to do with him and I end I have to figure out his feet and I had a trimmer in South Carolina trim him one time and I didn't like how it went so I was like okay that's one more message telling me that I got to learn how to do it on my own and so that's when I started going to Ida Hammer's clinics to learn how to do that. Why did you choose North Carolina and then South Carolina, East Coast, after California? So initially, North Carolina was decided on because I had bought the land with my partner and we had been looking at where we would find land and it was this combination of, I wanted at least 20 acres. She had wanted to be within 15 minutes of a city in order to run a teaching program and I wanted four seasons, but she didn't want it to be too cold. Drastic. Right, yeah. so the Carolinas was kind of this like pocket and people had been recommending Asheville to us for a long time. and It has a fun vibe to it. We chose North Carolina. And then the move to South Carolina to the lake was because I had gotten into wake surfing. And- As a hobby. Yeah. And so my current partner had introduced it to me and she was like instantly amazing at it. And for me, it was like, I enjoy it. It's fun being on the water. Like being on the lake is always amazing. And I was like, this might be a great way for me to like transition from what I was doing and what I'm going to do next. I don't know if you're familiar with what wake surfing is, but we had a 23 foot boat and you put about 4,000 pounds of water into the boat so that it sinks lower into the water. And then you put a fin on the side of it and you drive it like 10 miles an hour. So not very fast, but that creates a wave behind the boat. And then you take your surfboard, you get pulled up with a rope. And then once you're up on your surfboard on the wave, you throw the rope in and you just surf the wave for so as long like as you want. So it's like surfing, but you're creating the wave instead of the ocean creating the wave. Totally. It ends up being anywhere between two and four feet high and maybe 20 feet long. So that was like this new thing and I was getting like really frustrated with it because I wasn't very good at it. Like, I mean, I could get up and I could stay on, but I needed the rope. Like I couldn't figure out how to like let go of the rope and be able to just do it. But it started to like teach me more about what I was doing with my body in terms of like subtle weight shifts and how you can control it. So that was a big part of why we moved to South Carolina and ended up on Lake Kiwi and had just an amazing summer playing on the lake. And it was also that summer that I learned how to trim horse feet. When I finished that eight day class, I stopped at my mom and dad's and trimmed their two donkeys and stopped at another friend's place and trimmed her two horses. And so I was trimming for a couple friends, but I didn't really believe yet that it was gonna be like the way that I supported myself. I was like, I like this. I think it can work. I didn't really have a lot of confidence yet because it takes time. It's new and you don't, you don't make like instant progress. I mean, you can make subtle progress and you can see it, but it's one of those things that like when you start to see it after like seven months of working on your horse, you're like, whoa, now I'm starting to see some good progress. Yeah, or you wait those seven months and you're like, huh, nothing is happening. Right. Maybe I'm not gotta, that great at it. Yeah. yeah. Or you're like, okay, tried this for several months, got to find something else that's 
gonna be a little bit better. Yeah. So I moved to the islands. You started working on a few other people's horses. Your horse was sound by then? No. Not yet. The rehab process can be long or short and there's many factors involved in that and sometimes it's the horse's desire and sometimes it's the technique that you're using and I mean doing glue on shoes is complicated because there's so much to learn when you first start like the glue itself is mm -hmm. finicky according to temperature so like in South Carolina where it was like 90 degrees the glue sets in like 10 seconds oh, wow. so you've got to like have it, ready, have and it right. ready and done and good and I got okay I could keep them on for two weeks and then they would come off and I was like well that's better than two days so I'm making a little bit of progress but like they're not cheap and so I'm like spending a lot of money trying to learn how to do it hoping it's helping my horse not sure if it's helping my horse and then winter comes again and then it can take like three minutes for the glue to set so you're trying to like have your horse hold a foot up so your glue can set before you can put it down and eventually I learned some tricks like keeping the glue in a cooler with a hot water bottle so that it stays warmer in winter and will set faster or yeah. keeping it in a cooler with cold water so it can have a little bit more time to set. So many things came into play with the rehabbing of his feet. So now it's been about 18 months. When I started, he wasn't even comfortable holding up a front foot and standing on one front foot because his soles were so thin. Like on a rubber mat, picking up one foot, he would always hop up in the air. Oh. And he had for most of his entire life. And I always thought it was a training issue and that I just needed to train him better to stand better for the farrier. And he would just always hop up. Even when we were putting shoes on him, he'd hop up. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't do it anymore because he has better soles on his feet and he's more comfortable standing in his feet. He's grown better heels. He's got a, a healthier frog. We're still working on bringing the digital cushion back. And it's one of the things that takes longer to rebuild. So how did horses originally come into your life? Been a part of my life for a long time. I grew up on a dairy farm in New Hampshire, but it feels like we always had horses. And my mom and dad had both ridden growing up. Horses had been a part of each of their lives in different ways, and that's how they met was through horses. And I remember getting frustrated a lot like not ever being able to accomplish what I wanted to with horses. I was always more comfortable on the ground with horses than I was on their backs. My sister was the opposite. She was more comfortable on their backs. And so one of the horses that we had was very challenging. And my sister was nervous around her on the ground and I was nervous of her on her back and so I would do a lot of the things on the ground and she would do the other things on her back. It's kind of beneficial that each of you had the different uh -huh. skills. Did you guys ever get actual training or lessons or you were just figuring it out with your parents? I definitely had some lessons and I went to some horse camps and I think just having grown up on a farm and always being around animals in some way makes you really aware of what they notice, what they pay attention to and how they react to different types of things and just that amount of time around livestock, around horses, is really helpful. And when I left for college, I did three semesters, and then I joined the Marine Reserves. And when I came back from the Marine Reserves, I was trying to get in-state tuition, and my uncle connected me with a ranch in Carbondale, Colorado. And so I worked up there for a while, and that was for a hunter-jumper barn. And I also helped out around the ranch and did other things too. I was riding 
horses that had been around for a while and could carry somebody who didn't know everything. Could teach you. Yeah. Yeah. But frustration was still there, though. I remember getting so frustrated that, like, after the ride, I would be behind the barn crying because I didn't like the way that I had handled the situation and upset enough that I didn't know if I wanted to continue doing horses. And eventually, I just, I stopped actively doing things with horses because I didn't feel like I could find somebody that could help me do it differently. And I think the truth is that there were plenty of people that were offering it to me. I just couldn't find it in myself. I didn't know how to respond to it. I feel like I have always struggled to take direction from other people and that I generally have to just learn on my own. I have to make my mistakes and figure it out. And if I get to the point where I know I need help and I can ask for it, then I can receive it. But if somebody comes in and tries to offer me help when I haven't asked for it, man, I resist it so strongly that I make everybody miserable. Me, the other person, the horse, like it's all bad. Yeah. And so when do you feel like you officially recognize that in yourself? <laughs> Probably when I was 40, four years ago. Perfect. I mean, you still recognize it? No, I. <laughs> Yeah, I knew it before then, but I didn't know how to change it. I think it's been in the last four years that I've discovered a way of like softening something inside myself so that I can be like, okay, I can do that. And I mean, it wasn't only in my horsemanship, it was in everything in my life. I have an MFA in creative writing and the process of getting an MFA is like workshopping what you write. And so in those workshops, like people would comment on my poems and in my head, I would be like, no, I don't care what you think. That doesn't matter. I don't like your ideas at all. And then two days later, I'd be like, they're right. <laughs> I have to acknowledge that they're right. And so I'd make the change, but it would be like resistant. And I like wouldn't want to, but it was hard for me to acknowledge that somebody else could see something in me that I couldn't see in myself. So in the horsemanship, I just stopped actively riding or actively trying to pursue it. But... My partner at this time was still a horse trainer, and so I was around horses. I would still go to the barn with her and to be around horses, or she would ride on the trail and I would run with the dogs alongside her. And I would groom them and spend time with them that way. And I've always been really good at like finding their favorite spots and like making them feel good and giving them... I, I never thought of it like a massage. It's more that I would just find where they were itchy and I would make them happy. And my dad has a... I'm sure it's not his, but he says it often, which is that there's something about the inside of a horse that's good for the inside of a man. And it's really true. Mm -hmm. Like I think I just benefited a lot from being around them. And I also benefited from not actively trying to ride, which I think was me actively trying to make something happen. Yeah. Or like make the horse do something. Instead of that understanding of like, asking them if they can do something or asking if they're willing to do something. So sometime while I was with Jenny, she started learning about a different way of approaching horses and I started to see something shift in her relationship with her horses and it made me be like, that's more of what I wanted. And I got interested in it again. The approach seemed very like technical and like step by step. And it kept feeling like it interfered. I don't know that I could articulate it at the moment, but it always felt like it interrupted the relationship. And at least for me, I get, it's really easy for me to get like focused on a task 
and forget that I'm like working with a sentient being, whether it's in an, a job and with people or with horses, like I can get so focused on the thing that I forget that there's like a partnership there, that like you're working with somebody or like I'm putting pressure on myself to complete a certain Do thing or right. accomplish a thing instead of like, how does this make us feel? So I ended up with my horse, Wes, and we had gotten him at an auction thinking he'd be a project horse that we'd train and sell or she would train and sell. And this is the horse with the feet? So? Uh -huh. Okay. Yeah. And I don't even remember how, but he became mine. And he's got this like super cool energy. Like he is just the man and he knows it. There was a part of the process that I was doing at the time where I was still trying to like make him do things. And I was still trying to I could see other people do it and I couldn't do it the same way. I couldn't get the same results and I'd get frustrated and I'd end my sessions with him and I wouldn't be happy. I wouldn't be okay. And I didn't look like he was either. And I wanted to try something different. And so I started playing around with clicker training and positive reinforcement. And I mean, initially it was just with like silly games and tricks and things like that. but. It sparked something in both of us, and we both started to enjoy our time together a little bit more. And that felt good, like really good. I was aware enough that I could tell he didn't like what I was doing, but I wasn't aware enough to know how to just change what I was doing to help him feel better. And so in playing around with the positive reinforcement, it was, it shifted my focus. I, well, the shift really was that I let go of trying to accomplish anything. And I said, it doesn't matter what he and I do. It doesn't matter what we get done. What matters is that we both enjoy our time together. I think that's really the big shift for him and me. And when I did that, it like totally changed everything for me in terms of how I interacted with him. And not like it was like I shifted everything at once. Like it was certainly a long process that that went through. Yeah, but you realized it instantaneously. Yeah, like it became really quick. I mean, it became apparent very quickly that he appreciated this game. He liked this new thing a lot. And it became a really effective way for me to communicate to him what I did want. Because I could be like, yes, that right there, that's the thing I want. And of course that opens up this whole other realm of possibilities with what you get because then he's like you like that you want this too and I'm like oh crap what did I just get myself into yeah <laughs> and like one of the things I've always wanted to teach him to do was rear and everyone's like don't do that like that's a dangerous thing you don't want to teach your horse to rear and like everybody's been like super cautioning about how you approach it and they're like if you do it you only do it in a certain place or you always make you have like double cues so that you don't get it accidentally or you don't get it in a dangerous place and I'm like all that has made a lot of sense I mean I've been playing with it for four years and I just got a new piece of information that has totally shifted how I'm approaching that with him now because I don't just want like a flail up in the air kind of a rear basically I want a lavade I want to be able to like get that and and so I was like how do I like teach him to just or, hold it instead yeah, of yeah. Or like, how do I clearly ask so that he knows how to use his body to do this thing? 
so it's just been like experimentation. Like I'd try something like for maybe three months and then realize that the posture he's using to do it isn't right. And so I'd have to shift and go back to the beginning. Like he knows up, he knows that, but I need like all the engagement and everything else. And it's like, how do you teach? How do I be more clear about asking that I need you to use this part of your body? And so that's just like this experiment that we go with. And it's just been important that it's not about like getting the successful Lavad or rear. It's still about, are we both okay with the process? Do we both enjoy the way we're spending our time? Yeah. Which is completely opposite than how you used to be. (laughs) (laughs) You used to just want the thing, the final product. Right. And now I tell people all the time, like, if that's what you want, like get a tractor or a four wheeler. (laughs) Get a motorcycle and just floor it. Right. Because you'll get instantaneous responses and do the things that you want. But if you want that relationship and you want to learn how to work on yourself, then an animal is going to help you do that. Yeah. What is it about the rear that you wanted to do? (laughs) I don't know. I'm sure part of it's just like the challenge of it. I think part of it is that it looks really, really impressive. I like being on the ground with horses. I'm still more comfortable on the ground. I'm much more comfortable in the saddle than I used to be. I think initially I was worried about affecting my riding by adding in a new training method. And one of the pieces of advice that I was given was like, pick something totally separate that you've never worked on and do that. Mm -hmm. Because then it's kind of like, your horse can learn that there are different rules in different situations. Kind of like you go into a basketball court, you know the rules are of a basketball game versus you go into a soccer field, you know the rules of soccer. And so I tried to be very clear about when I would do positive reinforcement it was certain activities in a certain environment do you remember your first time seeing a horse rear and being like that's no No. not at all i remember seeing lots of them being done and not liking it and knowing that's not the way i wanted to do it what didn't you like about those ways the expression on the horse's faces or like what it looked like it felt to them because it didn't look like they were enjoying it it looked like them rearing was actually an attempt to get away from what was happening. He had a good friend, another horse that Jenny and I had together, Finn, and the two of them would just like play hard. And a lot of what they would do is like rear up. And it was so, it's so amazing to me to watch them play because they have such control of their feet and their teeth because they would be like rearing straight up right next to each other, but like never make contact. It was just this like sparring game that they'd go back and forth. I feel like that's something that I've really enjoyed is like that wanting to like play with your horse. And I feel like lots of people also caution me with that because like you have to be careful about being that because you're not as big as your horse. You don't really want to play in the same way that he does with other horses because that'll get you hurt. Do you mind explaining like a tidbit about what positive reinforcement is in your journey? Yeah. Just for people that might not know. For me, what it was, was I use a sound as an indicator to tell the horse that they did the behavior I want. So I think another explanation of what can be helpful is positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement. And it's all about math. It's about like the addition or the subtraction of an element into the equation to help communicate to the horse whether they're doing the behavior you want or not. So for example, 
if my horse took his front feet off the ground and trying to teach the rear, I would I'd make a click sound to tell him that he did what I want and then I would follow it up with a food reward. And so then the click meant he'd get a food reward. So you started using that on your horse and recognizing the, the joy that came out of it for yourself and for your horse. Yeah, and started using it on our dogs and cat as well and you know I think that's always something that's been intriguing is like how do you use it with people in a way that's not offensive to them because I think some people if you just hand someone you do is a noise and hand someone a snack I think I think it might work <laughs> especially if it's chocolate snacks yeah I so I did go to the clicker expo one year and one of the things that they did at the very beginning was they gave everybody five or ten little coins or tokens and they said throughout the duration of this clinic if you see somebody doing a behavior that you appreciate hand them one of the tokens oh that's cool and then tell them why and so it made it a really fun experiment because all of a sudden somebody would hand you something and you'd have no idea why and then you'd get to learn what they enjoyed about what you did yeah and it was a fun way of also like shifting your attention to behavior you want instead of behavior you don't yeah and you get that reward of token yeah just a little dopamine rush yeah and i think a shift in i think it's so easy for us to pay attention to the things we don't like or don't want and i think that's been another shift that i've seen in my life from practicing the positive reinforcement is like you start to be aware of the things you appreciate and you start to have a practice of gratitude in your life and you realize how much there is to be grateful for and how many good things there are and then the more you notice those things it's like the more they're in your life and it just gets better and better from what i'm picking up from you it sounds like you're hard on yourself <laughs> yep. have these expectations and have these goals and so i think recognizing the positives instead of focusing on the negatives is yeah, a I, good journey. <laughs> yes, you're absolutely right. I am, I am very hard on myself and trying to find ways of, of shifting that focus so that I can, because the same as in a horse, a dog, a cat, same as in myself, if I pay attention to what I like, I end up bringing more of that into my life as opposed to like beating myself up. I just make myself miserable and don't get any actual change happening. I, I taught writing at the college level like freshman composition classes for a couple years and that was always a part of my critiquing of the, the the papers I would always start with like things at least one thing that they were doing really well because I think it's important for people to know because everybody has strengths as well as weaknesses and you've got to know what those are and then even in the places where there's room for improvement that's what it was it wasn't like you did this wrong all your punctuation sucks yeah. it's like here's your area for improvement like focus on this one thing for the next month whether whatever it was yeah and so then it's like an opportunity for growth as opposed to uh you did this yeah, wrong. Yeah. yeah do you want to talk a little bit more you brought up poetry earlier <laughs> in writing so do you want to talk about that and if you still have a journey with that or what the kind of goal was with that before or and or now it almost feels like a whole different me that did art and writing my focus in life has just shifted so greatly 
I mean, at the time I was working an office job and so I'd be at a computer for eight to 12 hours a day. I was an editor for a magazine and I'd come home and I didn't even want to write on the computer anymore. And so I shifted to using a typewriter and then I shifted into doing more like collage type things and writing was a part of it, but it wasn't the main focus. And I also was becoming frustrated that as hard as I tried with my writing, the effects that I was trying to get out of people with my writing, it was never what other people got out of my writing. And I felt like I had no control in my writing. And I realized that I was writing for the wrong reasons. And so at some point I shifted to being like, it doesn't matter what other people think, I'm writing for me. And so I just have to do this for me. That allowed me to do some really wildly creative projects that nobody understood. So I think that's where what writing was for me. It was an emotional outlet. It was a way for me to process something that I had no, I didn't know how to process in another way. Did something specific happen with that shift when you recognized like you're just gonna do? That I wasn't gonna do writing or art anymore? That or the shift of doing it for you and it doesn't matter if people understand it or not. <laughs> so, when I got out of my MFA program, it's all about publishing, right? It's all about like submitting your poems and having them published somewhere. And all these literary journals say like, you can't simultaneously submit. Like if you want to submit something to be published, you have to send it to them and only them. And I understand that because like, if they say they want it and then somebody else says they want it, like who's going to publish it. But I'm like, the chances of somebody accepting something is so small. So I actually set it as a goal to have something accepted in two different publications. And so I like, I took the shotgun approach. Like I just submitted everything everywhere as often and as fast as I could with like, I wanted to see something get like simultaneously accepted and have to deal with whatever the outcome of that was. And it never happened. But in the process of like doing all that submission and getting all those rejections, and then like watching it impact me in my writing and wonder like, why aren't they accepting it? Like, am I gonna change something in the way that I'm writing? And I would like try to find the journal that I appreciated and fit better with my writing. So I was submitting to the right places. And I don't know that it really helped. I mean, I probably got a hundred or so things published in various places, but it, I don't even know that it was fulfilling. And I think that's when I shifted into the typewriter. Like it wasn't about like getting it published. Because the other thing I realized is I have no idea if anybody's reading what I wrote. Sure, it got published in a journal, but if they're reading it, I have no idea who they are or where they are, and I don't get an interaction with them. And so then I was on this exploration of writing. I got a wood burner for Christmas from my mother, and I started to wood burn my poems into different objects. I love finding bones, and my dog at the time loved to find bones, and so we'd find bones in our hikes around LA, and then I would wood burn poems into those bones, whether it was a skull or a jawbone or whatever. And we'd find pieces of driftwood. So it was a bone burn. Yeah. Not a wood burn. Yeah, which you <laughs> want to do outside because when you it burn smells. bone, it smells bad. <laughs> Why did you choose bone and not just because you liked finding them? I liked the artifact element of it. I liked the way that like the object related to the content of the poem. Um, whether it was a piece of leather or a bone or wood, but I, I mean, I was gravitating to like very earthy objects. Yeah. 
and I, I did other things that weren't as earthy connected. I was blending art and writing together in different ways on different things. But I was started collecting bones everywhere I went. It was like, ooh, what is that bone? <laughs> would you look it up or like try to figure out what it was from or not? Not really. I mean, some of them I would know. Like I could identify a vertebrae or mm -hmm. different things. And is there a favorite one that you found? Or a favorite experience finding a bone? Yeah. I had a mastiff cross. He was like 110 pounds. And he lived till he was 16. There was a good 10 year period where I spent more time with him than I did any other human. As he got older, he couldn't move as fast. But sometimes we'd be out on a hike and he'd find a bone. And one time he found this like, it was a horse skull. And he was gonna bring it home. <laughs> and I just had to wait and let him bring it home. He didn't want me to carry it. He wanted to carry it. And he was gonna bring it all the way home. And he did. But I have lots of photos of him carrying Bones home and like watching him like figure out where was the right place to hold it, where was the right place to hang on to it. Not all the bones I found were like on hikes. Some of them people would give me or occasionally I would be like, I want a specific bone and I'd find how to get them online from Craigslist. Well, <laughs> I don't know that. I, yeah, I did do one on Craigslist. Really? Yeah. Now you have Facebook Marketplace. Right. So. Yeah, but there's also like just websites that like you can pretty much pick any bone of any creature on the planet and... Mail it to you? Yeah, I mean, you have to be willing to pay a certain amount for it. Yeah. But you can find pretty much anything if you want it. Uh, have you ever done a human bone? I haven't burned a human bone. I did start a writing project. I got into this idea of conceptual art projects. I don't even know how to like explain it, but it became about like the whole concept of the everything together. And so I was like, I'm going to write a poem that after I die, I'm going to insist is burned onto my skeleton as a part of my death request. Okay, like I, in your will. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I never finished that project and it's not going to be in my will. I had that idea of like how I would do it. What made you stop that project? I think I got hung up on the importance of what part of the poem would go on which part of the bone and what the why that would be done that way. And I got locked up in my head. And I think in the shift from being artist and writer into doing what I do now is also the realization that I am much happier when I live in my body than in my head. If I am anxious or worried or feeling an emotion I'm having difficulty dealing with, it's usually because I'm in my head. And if I can find where that emotion feels in my body and just like be aware of it and live with it, I'm much more okay with it than the other way around. Yeah, that is a good shift. <laughs> Any more pivotal moments that you want to bring up or talk about? I don't know if there are pivotal moments. I feel like for me it's been more about seeds that have been planted. And oftentimes I was given the opportunity, somebody like planted the seed in me, and it didn't grow then. And sometimes it was like the fifth or sixth time that somebody offered me that seed that I was like, okay, now I'm ready to let it grow. That's important for me in my approach to trimming as well, because not everybody wants what I have to offer, both in terms of the technical know-how that I have in trimming a horse, as well as like my approach to the horses themselves. And I don't want every client either, because it's a little bit of a matchmaking process. 
one of the things that's important for me and all of my clients is that they have the desire to grow. And they don't have to be the perfect horse owner, they don't have to be the perfect human, they don't have to be doing everything right with their horse. All they have to have is the desire to improve and to learn from it themselves and to do the best they can for their horse. And as long as they're willing to make progress, then I'm willing to be a part of that journey with them. Because people have done that for me. I couldn't be where I am now without lots of help from other people, without like them offering me opportunities and me saying, no, I'm not ready. And that's part of life. That's how it works. You can only do so much when you're in your early 20s and your brain's not fully developed yet. Yeah, or early 30s or... Yeah, like each decade is different. And people often ask me, do you ever want to go back to an earlier time in your life? And, you know, I think the answer is always the same. Like, if you can take the wisdom that you have now and go back to that age, but, like, that's what you get. You can get youth or wisdom. You don't get to have them both at the same time. No. When my relationship ended and I moved from California to Asheville, like, that was huge. That was kind of like an eye-opening kick in the pants of, like, okay, if you don't want to repeat whatever caused that to end, then you're going to have to find some new ways and start figuring things out in a different way. And that means like exploring and experimenting and trying things and being willing to let them go when you realize they're not right. And it means needing to be vulnerable, like as often as you can. And the sooner I can recognize a weakness or recognizing that I'm doing something I don't want to continue, like just recognizing it and shifting, being willing to make that change. I kind of want to like reference some of the things that Mark has said while we've been here. So one of the things that he said that like really resonated with me, and of course I'm paraphrasing, but he's like, I try to live my life so that at the end I have the fewest apologies as possible. And it just like having like guiding principles like that of like how you make your choices like is this going to be something i have to apologize for later is is really nice and i think going back to vulnerability knowing how to be soft and firm with your vulnerability because if you're vulnerable with some people and even with some horses you'll get run over and you'll get hurt and knowing how to like be vulnerable with boundaries and knowing that it's okay to set boundaries, knowing that it's okay to tell other people no, you're not willing to work on their horse because it's not safe. Or knowing that you're like, mm, I don't want to hang out with that person because I don't like who I am when I'm with them or I don't like how I feel when I'm with them. I think it's been in my 40s that I learned that it's okay to say no. That's really key for me. And I, I mean, I mentioned that I'm much more comfortable in my body than I am in my head. And that's where I have to listen for answers. Like, if somebody asks me a question, I have to pay attention to my gut. And I know that the gut gets referred to as like an instinct, but it's like physically in my stomach that I have to be aware of the answer. Because if an answer comes from my head, I, I can't trust it. I think for me, lots of ideas end up in my head. And they're not all ones that my body wants to follow through on. And so, like, they at least have to align. So you're trimming now, and are you training as well? 
<laughs> so I have a really difficult time with the word training. So I don't, I wouldn't say that I train. I think other people might say that I do. But I think inevitably when you're trimming, you're going to find behaviors that you'd like to modify. I mean, basically my entire approach to trimming is to show the horse that what I'm going to do is going to help it feel better. And so on a first time visit to a horse, like I'm going to look at the feet and be like, okay, that's the thing that I can do and give them the most relief. And I'm going to get that done. And then I'm going to back away and let them feel it. Because if they can understand that each time I pick up their foot, I'm going to help them feel better. They're going to stand and they're going to tell me what foot to do. And now there are times that like I say, I get done trimming a horse and I think I'm done and it just keeps picking up one foot. And I'm like, I forgot something. It's telling me there's something else in that foot that it wants me to address. And I'll go and I'll look and I'll be like, ah, I think it's this. And so I'll do it and I'll put it back down. And sometimes I'm right and sometimes I'm not. But like, that's a really important part of my trimming process is listening to the horse. I mean, like listening to the whole horse, looking at the body, seeing what I see from the hair coat to the body condition, to the angles of the feet, like all of it, like everything's connected in there. And the great part about that is that like, I can touch one thing and affect everything in that horse. And the other thing I think that's important for me in trimming is like, it's important for horses to move. And movement is one of the ways that they communicate with me. So I don't like to trim in cross ties because you're taking away that horse's ability to move, which is one of their ways of communicating. Like if a horse is uncomfortable and they're fight or flight animals, if you take away flight, you are encouraging a fight. I would much rather a horse walk away from me while I'm trying to trim its foot than that it like get in a fight with me. Yeah. Like I would much rather have a different opportunity. and. I'd say that I learned that the hard way because I was trimming a horse that was in cross ties and usually I feel like I'm pretty aware of when they're not okay, but I got kicked out of the blue. It felt like it was out of the blue. It's probably never that way. But I was like, if that horse hadn't been in the cross ties, would I have gotten kicked or would it have just moved off? Yeah. And so I was like... Lesson learned. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And if someone wanted to get a hold of you, how would they get a hold of you? They can certainly find me on Facebook or they're welcome to email me at justkibby at gmail.com. Cool. So something I like to ask is what is something within the horse community that you'd like to see evolve or change? And then how can you help if you're not already with that change? The first thing that comes to mind is that I would love for more horse owners to be better educated about hoof care, both in terms of what they can do throughout the month to take care of their horse's feet, and also how much their feet impact their horse's movement and everything they're trying to accomplish with their horse. I was clueless about hoof care prior to learning how to trim. I mean, I knew you picked out feet, and I knew that you watched for thrush. I didn't know anything else. Like I couldn't even tell you what the parts of the hoof were, much less like what function they had or how they impacted the horse's movement. And like just understanding like what parts of the hoof there are and how that relates to the internal structures. And 
there's lots of online classes now for people to like learn more about the hoof. And I mean, I feel like I know a lot about the hoof and now there's other parts that I'm realizing are connected. And so this year, my big push is to learn more about nutrition. And I mean, I know some of the basics of like how nutrition impacts the hoof and the weight of the horse and their energy, but there's lots of other smaller details involved in that. So that's what I'm trying to learn more this year. Like nutrition is my big push and I'd love to work learn how to do more body work and learn how to do know more about anatomy and all of that because I see how impactful it is in any sort of behavior modification because when you're aware of like where tightness is in the body then you're aware of where the brace is and where you're trying to get more softness but you're also aware of where that horse's challenge is and I have a much greater appreciation now for how hard it is for a horse to perform after taking Pilates and realizing how hard it is for me to do certain moves and it doesn't matter if someone would like pull on my leg or tell me five times in a row to do it I'm like I actually don't know how to access that muscle yet so I can't do that thing and I'm like oh my god how many times have I tried to get my horse to do something without thinking of how complicated it is and whether or not he knows where that muscle is I mean he knows how to use all his muscles he can do whatever he wants with his body when he wants to it becomes complicated when we say, we want you to use that specific muscle to do this specific thing. Yeah. And do you have any resources for people that are interested, like online classes, specific ones that benefited you that you would want to refer? Absolutely. The lady that I've learned most of what I know how to trim from is Ida Hammer. And her website is mackinawdells2.com. Exploring the equine hoof class. That's phenomenal in terms of understanding how the feet impact the horse. And it's where all of her trimming advice comes from is like you trim the outside of the hoof because you're impacting the inside of the hoof. And so you have to understand the anatomy of that hoof and what it does and how it functions because that's what guides what we do on the outside of the hoof in terms of helping the horse feel better. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, thank you for chatting with me. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thank you for the time. Hello again, and thanks for tuning in to Stable Connections, the podcast. This is your host, Shauna Burke. And if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, don't forget to tune in every Monday morning. And the best way to help keep Stable Connections going is to follow us on Instagram and on Facebook. And don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. See you next week.